Well, it is fall, and you know what that means. No. That was too easy. Set you right up for that, didn't I? It means the annual pilgrimage we Floridians make to the mountains. Isn't that what happens? Nobody here has a plan to go to see the fall colors. Okay, that's what I thought. Yes, people are going. The, the infamous Blue Ridge Parkway for us flat, straight road people is tough. In fact, one of the, I didn't even know this part of it existed. I, I, there's a picture up here of the tail of the dragon. Have you heard the tail of the dragon part of the road? Anyone? Anyone? Okay, good. I, I didn't know about it. Um, I had a friend who was pastor down in Big Pine. He liked to take his motorcycle with his wife. They had kind of matching I don't know, Gold Wings or Harleys or something. I don't know what kind it was. And they'd go and, and, and they'd, they'd ride this road. And, and I, I looked it up just for today. It's a fascinating road. 318 curves in 11 miles. I'm getting car sick just thinking about it. Anybody else? I mean, that's, that, that road is there. When we go up and visit friends in that area, we kind of avoid those roads. Those are not the places we want to go. But some people just love it. Now, I, I'm amazed, too, you get in to those, uh, those roads, and, and some of the curve, the reason they're curved is because you're kind of on the side of a mountain, right? The thing that always gets me is as you're coming down, those uh, semi-tractor trailer bailouts with the big, the, 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 like the rumble strips of sand and the big mountain of sand, like I do not want to ever have to see somebody go crashing into that. It's just got to be just, I don't know what, but, but it's a fascinating road. And one of the things that you'll see on those roads very important things you'll see on those roads. We've talked about this before, those wonderful things called guardrails. Those steel or metal things that are along the side so that should you stray too close to the edge, there's a barrier there to catch you. Now, we know a little bit about it. It's not actually a guardrail. We in the Keys, we don't do guardrails. No, we do that. A Wyland painted, colored barrier. And it's made a difference, right? Why did we do that? Because on the stretch for years where there was just that wonderful painted line, there were head-on collisions and fatalities, and so they've thrown that in there. They've erected that the whole length of the stretch because it provides safety if you can't stray into oncoming traffic and that sort of thing. makes sense. These barriers, these guardrails have great purpose in our lives. And I want to kind of use that today as our jumping off point. We've been talking for a few weeks, uh, looking at some of the things Solomon said, primarily in the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, Solomon, the wisest person that ever lived, asked God, or given the opportunity to ask God for anything, and he asked for wisdom. And because he asked for wisdom, God also gave him great power, great wealth. Uh, unfortunately, though he used that wisdom at times in his life well, there was a period where he began to stray from that path, to stray from the wisdom that he had. And in the book of Ecclesiastes at times, he writes about the lessons he learned the hard way. The lessons that, that he learned derailed his life, wrecked his life, ruined his life. And, and he, we've been looking at some of those things. A couple weeks ago, we looked at the fact that Solomon pursued pleasure. Anything he could possibly have whether it was sensual pleasures or the pleasures of the material world, he went after it and he found out again and again all of those things were meaningless or vanity or, or habel, 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 using the Hebrew word that he uses over and over and over again. 
in that book of Ecclesiastes. Last week we talked about success. Solomon was a man that was very successful and he was very driven, but he found out while success is a wonderful goal to shoot toward, it makes a horrible, horrible God to serve. And success, if that becomes your all-consuming ideal and drive, will in fact ruin your life. And today I want to look at what we see Solomon learned. Actually, if anybody shouldn't have messed up in this way, it should have been Solomon. And we find Solomon confessing that one way to wreck your life, one way to actually ruin and derail and fall off the cliff of your life is to ignore wisdom. Now, the wisest guy that ever lived, wise guy, no, that's not good. That's a different thing entirely. The wisest man that ever lived should have been a guy whose life was marked by wisdom. Now, what is wisdom, you might say? We'll look at a lot of scriptures today that talk about it. But when I think about wisdom, I think about it this way. Wisdom is the ability to take what you know and apply it to any situation. For instance, if I were to go out to your car and open the hood, I could look under the hood and point out the things that I'm looking at. Not all of them, but a great many of them. However, you would not bring your car to me and say, can you fix it? Because though I might know what it's called and might could get a book that would tell me how to get into it, the end result would not be good. Right? You would, can we agree on that? I mean, I actually, I think you, we are agreeing, because none of you have ever come to me and say, hey, listen, pastor, could you fix my car? So you got that message, right? That's, that's good. So wisdom is the ability to take the things you know and actually apply them in any situation. And Solomon had this great amount of wisdom but he had a problem in that he couldn't always find the right way to apply it. And as he began to stray from that wisdom, his life, well, his life bore the marks of that difficulty. We're going to look beginning in Ecclesiastes chapter 9 today. Uh, most of the verses will be up on the screen, but if you want to grab your Bible, you can turn there as well. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, we'll roll over into chapter 10 a little bit. Look at these verses and see what we can learn. See what Solomon says about wisdom. I think it's pretty fascinating from his perspective, to hear him talk about that. We're going to start in Ecclesiastes 9, verse 17. And verse 17 of Ecclesiastes 9 says this, The quiet words of the wise are more to be heeded than the shouts of a ruler of fools. The quiet words of the wise are more to be heeded. Now, and I think we all can know this. You, you, we, we say in Scripture, or we, we talk about in church world, as I like to call this place we're in, the still, small voice of God, right? We, we take that from the Old Testament passage where God is going to appear to Elijah and, and he, he first sees, well, he sees three different things. He sees a fire, a whirlwind, and kind of an earthquake. And in each of those things, Elijah's thinking God must be in these displays of power and might, but God's not in any of those things until it says, finally, there is a, a still, small voice or a gentle whisper, and that, was the voice of God. And you know in your life, or at least I know in mine, that sometimes the voice of God is like that. It's that gentle nudging. The wisdom of God is often not blatant in your face telling you you've got to do it this way. Often the, the prompting of the Spirit of God, which is what we're talking about here, the wisdom that comes from God is that, that nudge, that gentle pointing in the right direction. And it is easy to have that gentle whisper drowned out by all the other stuff, all the stuff in our world that shouts at us in technicolor and with surround sound or however else it 
comes our way. We are bombarded, our senses are bombarded so that we can become dulled to the sensitivity to that still, small voice of God. And I think that's the, the path that Solomon's life begun, begins to take. As early in his life, he seeks wisdom and he builds the temple and he does these great things for God. But in these side quests for more or better or, or whatever it is, pleasure or success, or in this case, ignoring wisdom, he, he begins to dull his senses to the gentleness, the nudging of the wisdom of God. And so he writes for us here, the quiet words of the wise, heed those, listen for them, tune your senses to them. Wisdom, he says in verse 18, is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. And then in chapter 10, verse 1, he kind of fleshes that out a little bit. As dead flies give perfume a bad smell. Now there's a picture for you, isn't it? Ladies, you're getting ready in the morning and you've got that expensive bottle of perfume. It's your favorite. It's going to be a special, uh, forget the morning, because it's you're getting ready that evening for your big anniversary date with your husband and you pull out that perfume that you save for special occasions and it's your scent it's the scent that he bought you it's the scent that he thinks is so perfect and you pick up the bottle and floating in it are dead flies oh yes thank you he'll love this right i mean that would kind of ruin it for you you would think i mean that, that that's pretty Pretty, pretty strong image there. As, as dead flies give perfume a bad smell, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. Actually, if we were to back up in Ecclesiastes, some of the things Solomon said is a good name is like a fragrant perfume. That's the picture that he gives us. A good name is like a fragrant perfume. And so he returns to that theme here at the end of chapter 9, the beginning of verse or chapter 10, and says, but it just takes a little bit of folly to ruin a good name doesn't take much. I mean, and we could think about that. I could name people that you would know, Christian leaders even, that made incredible differences in their ministry. And I would guess when I named them, your thoughts wouldn't go to all the good they did, but it would go to that one moment of folly that made the news and probably cost them their job and their ministry. Just takes a little bit. Doesn't take Big, just, just one little thing ruins, mars a good name. And Solomon, that is a bit of his legacy. All that he did, all the good that he did, as his life sort of spirals in, in, in its later years, and as he chases these various things, it's that little bit of dead flies in the perfume that we look back on Solomon and say, wow, he could have made such a difference, and he didn't. And then notice verse 2. The heart of the wise inclines to the right, but the heart of the fool to the left. Now, before we go political, because <laughs> I know there were some amens coming, maybe. That is not what that means, just for the record. Although, you know, that might be a theme verse for those leaning right, you could say. the heart of the, but, but it's telling you wisdom and folly are two divergent paths. They are very different. In fact, in Scripture, the right hand, I'm, I'm using my left hand because it's probably your right hand, right? Right hand, this side for you guys, would be the seat of power, would be the seat of influence, would be the place of protection. God says, at my right hand are pleasures forever. Jesus is seated where? At the right hand of the Father. The right hand is the, the hand that means something. The left hand in Scripture 
and, and in many cultures is considered the negative. In fact, the, the English word sinister comes from the Latin word for left. So that connotation runs through, le- any left-handers here now? That, any sinister people? <laughs> yes, there you go. Look around, make a note. Left, ha- left sinister, that, those words are connected. So the idea here isn't, you know, right in thinking and whatever. It's, it's right is preferred, right is protected, right is power. Left is the opposite of all that. Left is, is, is less than, is unclean, is, is thought to even be evil. And so that's what's at issue here. The, 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 wise, the heart of the wise inclines to the right, to protection, to power, the heart of the left toward all those other things. In fact, there's, there's a, you may have heard of Henry Cloud. He's a psychologist, he's author, he's written a lot of books. He talks about actually three chairs. The first chair is the chair of the wise, the second chair is the chair of the foolish, and the third chair is the chair of the evil. I just want to talk about the first two since this is wise and foolish. And he does a really good job showing the difference between the, the seat or the chair of the wise and the seat or the chair of the foolish. And this is, this is how he describes it. The seat of the wise, those who sit in that seat, are those that are marked by the fact they're always learning. They're always looking for feedback. They're ready to receive correction. Like a wise person, if they stray, if they do something wrong, and you confront them with that, their response is likely to be, thank you for telling me that. Let me see what I can do to make that better. In fact, Proverbs 9.9, Solomon being a pretty wise guy, wrote some of these things, said, you correct the wise person and they become wiser still. So the seed of the wise, the, the wise heart that leans to the right, that place of power and protection, wants to, to recognize their limitations, wants to take responsibility even when they err, and wants to grow in those ways. By contrast, the seed of the foolish, as he talks about it, is the seat of the one who, well, if they're confronted with something has a variety of responses. When they hear the truth, what they want to do is rather than adjust their life to the truth they hear, somehow adjust the truth to fit their life. So if you were to confront someone who's in the seat of the foolish with these things, they would deny that that's even right, what you're trying to tell them. No, that's not right. They would make excuses. They would compare themselves to the, the norm of culture, other things. They would do anything they could. They would get very defensive about being confronted. We've been studying uh, Tony Evans' Kingdom Man on um, Thursday night with the men. We're about to finish that up. I think we're going to start another kingdom, uh, another Tony Evans one next. But, but he told a story that reminded me of something. He talked about his son who asked him to come watch him play basketball and dunk a basketball. And, and so he goes to the gym and watches his son dunk. It reminded me of when we used to have, when I was uh, in high school and college, we used to have slam dunk competitions, and I won a lot of them. I know that surprises you, and I'm offended by that. I, I mean, we would do that. We'd set it up, and I, w- I mean, I could go behind the back, between the legs, the, the, you know, the tomahawk. I could do all that stuff. What you need to know is it was a Nerf hoop on the back of the door in the dorm room, right? See, I adjusted the truth to my little world. I brought it down to my level, right? I can, I can dunk on a seven-foot door frame or eight-foot door frame, you take me out into a real basketball court, this white boy can't jump. It's just not going to happen. I'm not going to get up there. And so that's what we do if you're in the seat of the fool in your life. 
you're confronted with the truth, you're confronted with wisdom, and rather than say, okay, that's right, that is wise, that is true, so I need to adjust my life to line up with that. No, instead you say, that is ridiculous, that's unreasonable that anybody would be held to that standard, or everybody else is doing it differently, or don't blame me, it's just we begin to have all of these things. And Solomon says, the heart of the wise inclines to the right to adjust itself to the truth that it knows. The heart of the fool denies all of that thing. So there's two very different paths in mind here that Solomon throws out there. And we want to be those who sit in the seat of the wise. We want to have our hearts inclined toward wisdom. We don't want that fly to get in the perfume of our good name. Verse 3 says this, Even as he walks along the road, the fool lacks sense and shows everyone how stupid he is. Need I say more? There are many examples of this sort of thing, but, but I want to kind of catch on that word road because we started by talking about the barriers or the guardrails that are there. And, and, and I want to talk about the difference between a guardrail, between, between a barrier and a painted line because you see both of those on some roads, but they're very different animals. I shouldn't have said that given the picture I'm about to show, but have you ever seen, probably have, I know I have places where when they were painting the lines, they didn't quite get it right? Like I got a couple of examples. I just did a quick search. Here's one. I don't remember which one comes up first. Oh, this is, there's a limb. <laughs> and as the truck comes, like I'm not going around. You know, who's going to move the limb, right? The heart of the wise or the heart of the fool, right? We're just going to, we're going to adjust to the truth rather than keep that line true. Here's my favorite, the next one. Um, Roadkill. <laughs> you can move on. We don't want to see that too long. But I've growing up in Central Florida, I saw that a lot. You know, you just, what does it matter? Just paint right over it. Those lines are helpful. A- and it is remarkable when you think about it, how much we respect just those painted lines as we drive. Probably the reason... Uh, most of us are here today is because, for the most part, people in our world respect those lines. But the reason they put up that barrier on the stretch is because the minute you don't respect those lines and you stray over them, catastrophe can ensue. And see, I think this is what sometimes happens in our culture and in our thinking. As we go through life, Rather than have well-established barriers, boundaries in our lives, we substitute them with things that are, at best, just painted lines. For instance, sometimes, I, I say this maybe because I'm a preacher and I think maybe it holds some weight, but I'll see people, in the, especially young people, say, hey, have a good time, but don't do anything I wouldn't do. And I always get a look. Like, you just ruined it. No, not really that way. But, you know, we say things like that. What does that mean, though? Well, don't do anything I wouldn't do. Uh, there, there's some, even some, some things in our culture that were put out there. Uh, one of them is play responsibly. And that's usually in regard to, like, the lotteries. You should play responsibly. And those who have studied it realize that's the last thing most people do. In fact, the people that can least afford money for lottery tickets are often the ones that spend the most on lottery tickets, hoping to hit that 300, 400, 900 million dollar, whatever it is, jackpot. Another one kind of makes no sense to me is 
drink responsibly. And they're not talking about like your Coca-Cola. Although nowadays that is what they're talking about, isn't it? That's another story. Um, Drink responsibly, which is to me interesting because the moment you take a drink, your mind begins to lose its inhibitions. And so the more you drink, the less responsible naturally you become, right? So you kind of, how do you figure out where that line is? That line begins to get a little blurry after a few drinks, right? And, and then, like I said, I grew up in Central Florida. You say things like this. Hey, y'all, check this out. And you go do something crazy. And, and here's one that, that's thrown at us sometimes for, for our young people. They're told, listen, make sure you're ready before you have sex. Really? That's helpful. I mean, that's a very blurry barrier. That's something that maybe today you say, here's the line, but in the heat of the moment, that line is somewhere else entirely. So we have these things, and and we think those things sound helpful. We think those things sound good. But really, at best, they're the painted lines that we can easily stray across and over that really don't have any way, as opposed to a barrier, a boundary that's put up, that's firm and anchored to the ground so that when we butt up against it, it stops us from straying into those areas. In fact, when Andy Stanley talks about guardrails, one of the things he says that he finds interesting is they always put up guardrails just before the place of danger. Like that guardrail on those mountain roads isn't like on the very edge, right, barely anchored on the side of the mountain. It's usually a foot or two in. And it doesn't start at the worst part of the corner. It starts several feet back as you're entering into the corner. So it, it's not just that barrier that's anchored that keeps you from going over, but it anticipates where the problems might be so that even if you begin to start straying that way, it's there to hold you in. And we all know, I mean, I've driven on some of those roads. I have learned you're not supposed to, like, drive scraping the side of the guardrail, right? You know, you kind of don't want to do that. If you drove on all of those mountain roads with, like, your, the side of your car right up against that guardrail, would you be safe? Probably. Your insurance company wouldn't like you very much. A- and that's another difference, because if you notice those lines they paint, sometimes the, the most... I guess barrier part of them is when they put the reflectors in them or the little bumps in them. So if you, you stray too far over, you begin to hear, and that's, that's your cue to like wake up and move back over. It's helpful, but there's a difference between a bump that you hear and a physical barrier that stops you. And so Solomon, he and his life mixed in just a little bit of folly, and it cost him greatly. He didn't keep to the the barriers in fact he talks about wisdom when he wrote some of the book of proverbs i want to go through proverbs chapter 1 beginning in verse 20 in just a minute we're going to go through it relatively quickly yeah we probably will um relatively quickly to see some of the things he says there because in that passage as he talks about wisdom he personifies wisdom He personifies the wisdom of God as a way to say, hey, these are the the ways you can guard your life and and also the penalties for if you don't. And beginning in verse 20, he says this, Wisdom calls aloud in the street. She raises her voice in the public squares. 
At the head of the noisy street, she cries out. In the gateways of the city, she makes her speech. One of the things I like about that, and we'll look at another verse a little bit later, is the fact that what you need to know is wisdom, which I believe comes from God and God's truth, it's not something he's trying to hide from people. See, a lot of people think God is this mysterious entity, spirit up in the sky. Yes, he's holy, he's different, he's unapproachable and all of that sort of thing. But God is not the kind of God who wants us in the dark about how we should live our lives. God's not the kind of God that tries to keep his rules hidden from us so that only the best. In fact, there's a whole, a whole, I guess you'd say, heresy that arose up even in the early days of the church called Gnosticism. And the point of Gnosticism is there's this secret knowledge that only a very few people can attain and know. And if you're one of the select that can get to this mysterious secrets of God, the world opens up to you. And I'm like, secret knowledge? I got a book. It's like 66 writings that, that tell me about God, that tell me how he acted in history, that tell me how he set aside a people to bring about a Messiah so that he could pay the penalty for sin so that ultimately I could know him and have the hope of eternity. There's nothing mysterious. There's nothing hidden. Is it always an easy book to understand? No. Sometimes I read it and go, oh, that, I don't quite get that. But is there a lot in there that's pretty much, here it is, I, I have a hard time. Like, thou shalt not lie. Does anybody have any trouble with that? I mean, not like doing it, because we all do, but I mean like understanding it. That's pretty straightforward. There's a lot in this book of God's wisdom that he's not trying to cover up so only the best and brightest can get it. No, God reveals himself. He, he reveals through his word. He reveals in history through Jesus. God is not trying to keep his wisdom undercover. He wants you to know. And that's the picture here in Proverbs chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. It's shouting in the streets. It goes to the marketplace. It, it goes to the place where people are. God wants people to know how they can live their life according to his word. Verse 22. How long will you simple ones love your ways? How long will mockers delight in mockery and fools hate knowledge? We already talked about fools, the seed of the wise and the seed of the fools. Uh, that word for simple is kind of naive. It's kind of what's in, in mind there, gullible, naive and gullible. Uh, maybe some of you parents can relate to this. As your kids become teenagers and, and you, they're going to go do something, you begin to ask them questions. Now, where are you going? Who are you going to be with? What are you going to do? How late are you going to be out? And you begin to pepper them with questions. And what? Sometimes they respond to you, go something like this. But don't you trust me? I'm like, okay. Maybe. Yes. It's everybody else who's gotten worse. And, and there's also the reality that at 17, they've got the keys to the car, right? But they've only lived 17 years. There's stuff they don't know. I thought that y'all would agree with that. <laughs> I thought that was a pretty convincing point for blank stares. <laughs> At 17, as great as your kids are, there are things they don't understand. There's experiences they haven't had. There are, and we've had conversations with, with Caroline, and she didn't like it at the time. You know, she, yeah, okay, I'll tell the story. Why not? This was one of them. Yeah, there's nobody here to get me in trouble, right? <laughs> okay, good. Um, some of her friends from work were going to go do something up in Homestead, and they invited her to go, and she was like, well, that would be fun. We said, um, let's talk about this for a minute. And we began to ask her the questions. How are you going to get there? And, and that's who are you going with? And you know all those sorts of things. And she began to tell us. We said, we don't think this is a good thing. 
we don't think you should go based upon that. The only way you could go is if you took your own car, but you haven't driven in Homestead. You haven't driven up the stretch yet at the time, and so we don't feel comfortable giving you permission to take your own car up there, and we don't feel comfortable with you going with your friend. And she wasn't happy about that. And, it, and, and she thought, you know, what, well, you don't trust me. Like, here it is. Here's what it is. It's not that we don't trust you. We don't know what's going to happen. You get in your friend's car, and they go up there. What if they go to their friend's house? And what if then other friends come to that house? And what if those friends invite two friends and they all come to that house? And what if they begin pairing up? What if one of them invites their boyfriend and their boyfriend says, hey, she's bringing another girl. Why don't you come with me, whatever your name is, boy? And I'm sure you two, oh, I didn't think of that. That's all I could think of. <laughs> it's all. Right? So, so that's what's in mind here when it says simple. It, it means naive. There, there are times in our lives we need to listen to wisdom. We need, and sometimes that wisdom is the person of our parents. Sometimes it's an older uh, friend, an older brother or sister in Christ. A Sunday school teacher, it's a mentor. It's somebody that can speak into our life who has had experience in things and sees things we don't anticipate. And so that's what's in mind here when it says, how long will the simple ones love? We'll just kind of go about naively into and finding themselves in all sorts of trouble. Mockers, that's a little easier. Those are those that, you know, if you're in a situation and, and there's something that's going to happen and you say, no, I don't think I want to do that, and, and you know what mockery sounds like, you know, oh, you, you goody two-shoes, what are you, one of them Jesus freaks or whatever it is, and begin to kind of c- pushing you in that way, not respecting you and your stand, but mocking and trying to push you in those ways to make decisions. A lot of times the reason that mockers are like that is because they don't want to be stupid alone. Stupid likes company, right? I mean, crazy, foolish loves company because then it's not just me being the fool. It's a lot of people that are with me. If, if you had responded to my rebuke, verse 23, I would have poured out my heart to you and made my thoughts known to you. This is, again, God saying, ask and I'll tell you. If you would have just asked me my opinion, God's almost saying, or in this case, personified wisdom, the truth of God, I would have told you. But since you rejected me when I called and no one gave heed when I stretched out my hand, since you ignored all of my advice and would not accept my rebuke, this is hard, the next verse, I will in turn laugh at your disaster. I will mock you when calamity overtakes you, when calamity strikes like a storm, when disaster sweeps over you like a whirlwind, when distress and trouble overwhelm you. Now, don't hear me say, like, God's laughing at us when we have trouble because that's not the case. But the personification of wisdom is this idea that you reap what you sow is a reality. When you live your life in a certain way and make decisions consistently in certain ways, the results will inevitably come back to you based upon how you lived. If you are a person who is generous to others, it is amazing how often others will be generous to you when you have a need. If you are a person who is stingy and mean to others in need, often you get that same kind of thing when, you, when the shoe is on the proverbial other foot. And so the idea here is you reap what you sow, not that God is somehow laughing at our calamity. But the point is, 
don't mock me, wisdom would say, and expect me to bail you out. In fact, the next verse says this, Then you will call to me, but I will not answer. They will look for me, but will not find me. Since they hated knowledge and did not choose to fear the Lord, since they would not accept my advice and spurned my rebuke, they will eat the fruit of their ways and be filled with the fruit of their schemes. You reap what you sow. For the waywardness of the simple will kill them. The complacency of fools will destroy them. But whoever listens to me will live in safety and be at ease without fear of harm. So having said all that, here's our takeaway. How can I not mess up my life by ignoring God's wisdom? A few things. Number one, here's my favorite thing. One of the best promises in the Bible as far as I can think of it, and there's a lot of good ones. This is an awesome one. Ask God for help. If you want to have your life lived according to wisdom rather than wrecked and ruined, ask God for help. James chapter 1, verse 5 says this. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should do what? Ask God. And then this is the best part. Who gives generously to all without finding fault? And it will be given to him. If you are in a spot, if you're facing a decision, God says, ask me. If you don't have the wisdom for this, ask me. And I will give generously without finding fault the wisdom that you need. If you want to live your life rather than, than, than ruin it, chasing other things, if you want to stay within the boundaries of God's will, ask him and he will tell you. Secondly, sort of, I guess, 1B, not just ask him, but learn the things that God would show you. Proverbs, great book, right? How many chapters does Proverbs have? 31. How many days are in a lot of months? 31. Any guesses where this is going? If you want wisdom in your life, God, give me wisdom. And here's, here's the thing. He already gave you some. And one place that's full of wisdom is the book of Proverbs. And so on the first day of the month, read Proverbs 1. On the second day of the month, this is an easy part. On the third day of the month, on the 14th day of the month, okay, you guys are good. Just to say, and, and it's only going to, I mean, you know, what? A, I got a couple, two and a half columns. What's that going to take? Not hours. But what are you doing? You're taking the wisdom of God as revealed in his word, and putting in your life. You're like, okay, so for the rest of my life, every month, 12 times a year, I'm going to read Proverbs 1? Well, the good news is, like, you won't have to read Proverbs 31 every month, so you got that to look forward to. No. Um. Okay, how about this? There's, we, we've quoted it once already, just a minute ago, from the book of James. James is a fascinating book. James is a rather practical book. Maybe in the month of September, you read Proverbs. In the month of October, pick up James. James only has like five or six chapters. So you get to read it like five times a month. So you'll be done with that at the end of October. Then, then what do you do next? I'm glad you ask. November, what are you going to do? Maybe go to the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, and read them. Wisdom, the truth that became flesh, the word of God that became flesh is revealed. The, his life and ministry of Jesus is, is talked about. That's, that's a source of wisdom. 
you will find in circumstances, Jesus did things that I wouldn't have done. I wouldn't even thought to do those things. Why? Because he's smarter than me. So maybe I could learn from him. And so you're not just saying, okay, God, give me wisdom. You're also saying, God, you have already given me wisdom, and I'm going to look at it from time to time and see what I can learn. And then here's the kind of the last thing, why we started with this idea of guardrails or barriers. Set up boundaries in your life. Great book is the book called Boundaries by, I think it's John Townsend and Henry Cloud. Here is, you're wondering, what do I mean by boundaries? I'm just going to read you part of the first chapter. Are you ready? I think this is fabulous. The parents of a 25-year-old man came to see me with a common request. They wanted me to fix their son. Yeah, okay, there you go. Their son was 25, and, and he didn't come to the appointment. So the doctor, Dr. Townsend, says, oh, why didn't he come? Well, he doesn't think he has a problem. And so Dr. Townsend says, well, maybe he doesn't. Why don't you tell me about it? Well, that's kind of an odd thing for a doctor to say, but they began to tell the doctor, the psychologist, about their son, and, and they told him that, that they loved their son tremendously, they'd give him every benefit, but he had some problems. He, he had messed with drugs a time or two or five or 20. He had, uh, had some problems in school. He'd been to school and dropped out and, and that sort of thing. He had some entanglements with the law, couldn't find a career, couldn't hold a job, and they were really concerned about him. Um, and they said, and we're really surprised because we've given him everything he's ever wanted. Whenever he wanted to go to school, we, we gave him all the money he wanted. We said, we don't want you to work. We want you to study and focus on your studies. And even when he had problems at this school, we were okay with that because when he dropped out, we said, well, maybe this school will be a better fit. And so we paid the tuition for that, and he moved around and that sort of thing. And, and so they told him the whole thing. And this was his response. After they had talked for a while, I responded, I think your son is right. He doesn't have a problem. Well, okay, they were quite surprised by that. And they asked him, you don't think he has a problem? He says, that's correct. He doesn't have a problem. You do. He can pretty much do whatever he wants, no problem. You pay, you fret, you worry, you plan, you exert energy to keep him going. He doesn't have a problem because you have taken it from him. And then this is the question he asked him. Would you like for me to help your son have some problems? And he goes on, talks about boundaries. What do you mean boundaries, they ask? Look at it this way. It's as, it's as if he's your neighbor who never waters his lawn. But whenever you turn on the sprinkler system, your water only falls on his lawn. Your grass is turning brown and dying, but your neighbor looks down and his grass is green and healthy and he thinks, my yard is great. That's how your son's life is. He doesn't study or plan or work, yet he has a nice place to live, plenty of money, and all the rights of a family member. If you would define the property lines a little better, if you would fix the sprinkler system so that the water would fall on your lawn, and if he didn't water his own lawn, he would have to live in dirt, and he might not like that after a while. As it stands now, he's irresponsible and happy. You're responsible and miserable. So what you need to do are put up some fences to keep his problem out of your yard and in him, in his, where they belong. And they said, isn't that a bit cruel? Just stop helping him like that. And the doctor says, has helping him helped? Boundaries is the name of the book. Great book, quick read, Christian psychologist. Actually, not a quick read, good read, worth doing. But that's what, that's what the idea of guardrails are, boundaries in your life. Boundaries are for everything. You say, God, I need your wisdom. 
God, I'm looking in your word, and I'm getting the wisdom, and then I'm going to take that wisdom and erect some boundaries around it. You might need to erect some boundaries around your time. Maybe there's some people that have a hard time balancing work and home life. You're at the office too much, neglecting time with kids. There's always something pulling you here and there. Maybe you need to put up some boundaries, make some practical things that you put in place that say, okay, when it's 5.30, I'm leaving. Whether the work's done or not, I got to go home because my kids are more important than staying for an extra hour to catch up, whatever that case may be. Maybe it's in, in relationships you need boundaries. Um, whether it's a, a kind of a dating relationship, you know, the, the, the idea of God's picture of, of dating and the, the physical aspects of, of dating that sometimes get out of control. And when you just make that line, it gets a little squirrely and all. No, you need some boundaries. Maybe it's you won't go to certain places. You won't ever be alone. You won't do this. There's all sorts of boundaries you can put up for that. Maybe, it's, maybe you're past dating, you're in marriage, and you need some boundaries there. One of the things, meaning you need some just... I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to spend time here. I'm going to make sure I spend enough time. I'm going to have a date night with my spouse once a week or once a month or whatever it is. Finances. We need boundaries and finances. I learned the hard way. If you just spend money you don't have, eventually the people whose money you're spending ask for it back. <laughs> it's, it's weird how that works. And they want it back, and they want more than they gave you. By like 18% sometimes. That's, a, that's not a good thing. And so you've got to kind of, okay, one way that people put boundaries is they use the cash system. Some people put like an envelope, like our expenses this month for uh, eating out is $100. There's $100 in the envelope. And on September 5th, we went out in the Keys and it cost us $400. No, I mean, it cost us all 100 but then we were hungry again on the 6th and we wanted to go out, but there's no money in the envelope for going out. So that's your kind of a... That's your boundary. We can't spend no more money because of no more money in the envelope. Finances. I mean, we could go on and on about these places. And one thing you can do is find accountability. Accountability is an incredible, incredible boundary. If somebody knows what you're up to and what you're striving for and will ask you about that, ooh, boy. Here's, here's the kind of the preacherism. People don't do what we expect. They do what we inspect. Isn't that true of your life? You have expectations people have for you, and if they're not going to ask you about it, that might slide. But if you know, I'm going to get asked about that tomorrow, I'm going to make sure or be more likely to do that thing. People, and so we, we find accountability. One of the ways we do that in church world is through small groups. These Bible studies we have, yes, they're wonderful Bible studies, but another thing that happens in that dynamic of getting together with a small group of people is accountability. You share your life, you share your struggles. They say, how can I pray for you? How can I support you? Sometimes, how can I help you? And they ask you about it later. Like, hey, how's that going? And if you know somebody's going to ask you about it, you're more than likely to kind of try to do something about it. So there's the takeaway. Why are there guardrails on the highway? Why are there barriers down the middle of the stretch on US-1? Because they protect us. Same thing is the purpose of God's wisdom that he's revealed, to protect us. Now, a lot of people, when they look at God, don't necessarily look at him that way and say, well, how can I be sure God really has my best interest at heart? Well, here's my visual aid. The bread and the cup. How can you be sure God has your best interest at heart? 
because of what he's already done for you. God demonstrated his love for you in this, that while you were yet a sinner, while you were ignoring what he told you, while you were ignoring his wisdom, doing whatever you wanted, however you wanted, Jesus came and died. So because of this, it's kind of the basis. I can know God has my best interests at heart because of how he's already acted toward me in history. And if God would do this for me, send his one and only son to die for what I did, that's the kind of person I think I can trust with other areas of my life. And so that's why once a month here at our church, we take these elements together as a reminder. Because as we saw in Proverbs, folly shouts, but often wisdom is that still small voice. The voice of God is that still small voice. And this is the still small voice of God reminding you, I love you. I sent my son to die for you. Trust me.